time. Let me just give a quick recap um, of what we have covered over the past uh, few weeks. So, because I'm aware that there are some, some people in here that may not be uh, up to date with what we've been doing. So we've been running through a series looking at the biblical feasts um, from Leviticus 23. Uh, so ones like Sabbath, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, uh, Trumpets, Day of Atonement and Tabernacles. We have covered uh, Sabbath and the first three, and today we're going to be looking at Pentecost. But let me just give you a quick overview of what we've done. So basically the reason why we're looking at these things in the first place, because you may wonder, well, Leviticus is you know, a bit of an older book. What does that have to do with today? Well, Colossians 2, 16 to 17 says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. And so the reason we're looking at these biblical feasts is because Paul tells us that they point to Jesus, uh, and that they are ancient blueprints that he followed in his first coming, and they prophesy of his return. And so there's this um, encouraging aspect of, of seeing that God is faithful to his word and that his timing is perfect as we look at the first four. And it's also anticipation for his return and what that may look like. So we've looked at what the feasts are. And so firstly, they are God's feasts. Uh, the word Moedim, which is Hebrew for feasts, indicates that they are appointments in his calendars. So they are set days that he meets with his people. Uh, the word mikra, which is Hebrew for convocations, indicates that these are rehearsals for the future, so they are preparing us for something ahead. Uh, they are eternally observed, both now and in the kingdom to come, and there are scriptures that talk about that. And they are both historical and prophetic in nature, and so they instruct us to remember, but they also prophesy of Jesus' first and second coming. And the reason they matter to us today uh, is because learning about them and potentially even celebrating them, if that's something you want to do, should really increase our love for Jesus and our understanding of his ministry uh, as we see how he fulfilled these things, just as Colossians 2 says. They also confirm that God is truly in control, that he is faithful to his word, and that his timing is perfect across you know, the 14, 1500 years of when it was spoken at Mount Sinai to when it was fulfilled in his first coming. They were practiced by Jesus, the apostles in the early church, and not in a legalistic way, but very much so in a free and an eager way as they began to see that Jesus personified uh, these feasts that they were familiar with. Uh, and they give us a cycle, a God-given uh, rhythm of stopping, resting, and celebrating our God, which are all beneficial practices for us here in the Western Church. Then we looked at Sabbath and how this too is a weekly God-given rhythm uh, that he modeled to us way back in Genesis 2, to work for six days and to rest for one. The God who doesn't rest, who neither sleeps or slumbers, who doesn't need to rest, showed us that rest is important, even before work uh, came under the burden of sin. And so Shabbat is a weekly opportunity to stop, to rest, to delight, and to worship. And following this weekly practice connects us into that God-given rhythm that he has built into us and into the very fabric of nature. It's also a form of resistance because in stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping, we resist the rhythms of the world, uh, which is just go, go, go. It never stops, and it's anti-Sabbath in many of its um, kind of things that it does. 
And then two weeks ago, we looked at Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And so, Passover, uh, the instructions given to Moses back in Exodus 12, uh, give us a blueprint of Jesus' crucifixion and the sacrifice that was needed to appease death. And so, we looked at how on the 10th of Nisan, the same day that the Israelites were instructed to bring the lamb into their homes, um, God brought his lamb into his home as Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey on the very same day. And then from the 10th to the 14th, as the Israelites were instructed to inspect the lamb to ensure that it was unblemished and it met the sacrificial requirements, uh, Jesus, the lamb of God, was inspected by the religious authorities and by the civil authorities, and none of them could find fault in him. So he was unblemished. And then finally, on the 14th of Nisan, around the same time that tens of thousands of lambs were being killed and prepared for the Passover meal, the lamb of God was crucified on a cross and was prepared for burial. And so Jesus followed the time uh, order of the Passover, and he meets the requirements of the Passover lamb, which was to be an unblemished male lamb uh, with no broken bones. And so we remember John the Baptist declared, Behold, this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 uh, says that we are redeemed by the unblemished blood of the lamb, uh, speaking of Jesus. And then in John 19, 33 and 36, he records that no bones were broken in the process of his crucifixion, which was a very common practice, but it says that none were broken in order to fulfill these passages of Scripture. And then we see in Hebrews 9, 11 to 28, a passage that explains that it's by the blood of Jesus, by this perfect unblemished uh, blood, that we are delivered from sin and death. So just as the blood of the Passover lamb caused the death to pass over the Israelites back in, uh, in Egypt, so too does Jesus' blood cause death to pass over us. We've been set free from that. And then we looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how it also gives us a blueprint of Jesus' ministry. And so during the seven-day feast, the instruction was that only unleavened bread could be eaten and only unleavened offerings could be made to God. And so many of us will be familiar that uh, leaven is a symbol of sin throughout the scriptures. And as we've already said, uh, Jesus uh, was without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way, but without sin. Uh, John 6.35 and 1 Corinthians 11.24, just like we did this morning, Jesus uh, took the bread and compared it to himself, saying that he is the bread of life. And so as this unleavened bread, it's through his death and his resurrection um, that Jesus has removed the leaven from our lives, that we are now uh, a sinless and uh, an unleavened offering that we can present to God. And so also part of the instruction leading up to the feast was to do a bit of a spring clean, to clean your home, to remove all the leaven from one's house for the duration of the feast. And in the Gospels, we see that Jesus did likewise uh, when he removed the merchants and the money exchanges from the temple of God, the, the very place that God dwelt. And finally, we looked at the Feast of Firstfruits, which occurred on the day after the Sabbath, uh, during that Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so that is the day that Jesus was resurrected, and it wasn't by chance, it was by design. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, uh, Paul talks about Jesus being the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come. And so he is the first of the harvest. He is the, the initial offering of the much more that is to follow. And so what all of these things that we've already covered in the past few weeks show us 
um, is that everything that Jesus did, everything that he said was intentional, uh, that it wasn't by mistake, that it was it was in accordance to this pattern that God established 1,400 plus years earlier at Mount Sinai. And so it's not by chance, it's only by God's intentional orchestration that these events happened in such a way that they would fulfill the shadows of these feasts as we saw in Colossians 2. And so today we're going to look at the last of the feasts that Jesus has fulfilled before we move on next week, uh, looking at the remaining three. So, Pentecost. Something that we're probably all very familiar with is the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit came upon those in the upper room, uh, as recorded in Acts 2. However, prior to this incredible event, uh, this day was known as Shavuot, the biblical feast uh, of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. Uh, And it marked the beginning of the wheat harvest. And so the instruction was to count seven weeks, hence why it's the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Or once things became uh, Greek, uh, Pentecost means 50. And so to count 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits, which was the barley harvest. And that then initiated this uh, Feast of Pentecost. It is the second of the pilgrimage feast, and so one of the things we've been looking at is how God instructed his people to come to Jerusalem at three specific times, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle, uh, to celebrate these feasts. And in a book um, called Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus, uh, the author estimates that potentially 150,000 additional people made their way to the city of Jerusalem, which was already about twenty or 30,000 people strong. So these feasts were very large gatherings. They were no small feat. And as such, it makes sense why the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place on this specific day rather than earlier or any time later. So Acts 1.3 says that Jesus remained on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection to show his disciples that he was truly alive. Uh, And then as he's about to ascend into heaven, he instructs the disciples, as we know, to remain in Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit that will fill them with power from heaven. And then up he goes. And so Luke 24 tells us that the disciples were filled with joy and they basically danced their way back into Jerusalem from um, the Mount of Olives. And they spent all their time in the temple praising God. And so for the next 10 days, you know, unbeknown to them, they had no idea how long it was going to take. They weren't aware that, oh, in 10 days is Pentecost and that's God will do it then. You know, they were just being obedient to what God, Jesus had told them to do. And so for the next 10 days, the disciples and about 100 or so other people are in this upper room praying, fellowshipping and celebrating until on the day of Pentecost, All the believers were meeting together in one place and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house that they were sitting in. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. Now there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so the reason why there were all these um, Jewish people that had come from other nations is because Pentecost is a pilgrimage feast. And so when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, why are not all of those who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? 
And there were Perithians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, uh, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphim, something else, uh, Egypt, uh, Libya, Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty deeds of God. And so the Holy Spirit strategically appears on this feast at a time where men from all of these different nations, from Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, uh, Syria, all the way up to Turkey, all the way east to uh, east, never ever west uh, to Greece, uh, Egypt, um, and and down south into Arab uh, Saudi Arabia. All of these people are present um, because the instruction was to come during this time. And so the Holy Spirit falls upon them where there's all these people present. And a a large number of them repent and are baptized in both water and spirit. And then they return home uh, to where they've come from as witnesses of the gospel in order to fulfill what Jesus said at his ascension, which is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. And so in one moment, the good news, the gospel, goes international just like that. And again, as we've seen with the other three feasts that we've looked at, it's not by chance that these two events um, occurred on the same day, that it was intentional, that it was by God's design in order to fulfill the ancient blueprint that he established 1,400 years earlier at Mount Sinai. And so something that we learn really interesting, talking about Mount Sinai, is that within Judaism, based on the scriptures, it's tradition uh, that the Mosaic law was given on Shavuot, on Pentecost. And there's this fascinating correlation that happens between an event at Mount Sinai and what we've just read of in Acts 2. And so as many of us already know, Moses is up on Mount Sinai speaking to God face to face, and he's been shown this heavenly tabernacle and given the instructions on how to replicate that here on earth. Uh, and the finger of God writes 10 commandments on tablets of stone, along with a whole bunch of other things to help govern uh, this new society of Israel. And then he's told to return, to go back down to the people. And as he's descending, Joshua is halfway up and they hear this loud noise. And Joshua thinks there's war, um, but Moses is aware something terrible has happened. And so they return to find the Israelites worshipping the golden calf. We know that, right? Well, the Bible says that the consequence for their idolatry is that 3,000 people were killed on that day. Does anyone know how many people responded to the the message of Peter in Acts 2? 3,000 people. So on the same day that the law was given, 3,000 people died. But on the day that the Spirit was given, 3,000 people came alive. And this is, again, intentional. It's not by accident. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says that this is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. That the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the confirmation of of this new covenant, which um, was spoken about this morning, and it was prophesied by Jeremiah as well, whereby God's law would no longer be written on stone, but it would be written on the hearts of men and women, and that his spirit would dwell within us. What an incredible coincidence, eh, that these things happened at the same time. Pentecost is also commonly seen to be the day that the church was born, the ecclesia, the the body of Christ made up of Jewish and Gentile believers uh, with Jesus as our head. 
And so again, we see a, a symbolic reference of this back in Leviticus 23 when God is giving these instructions to Moses on how to commemorate this feast. And so starting in verse 15, it says that from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, which is the feast of first fruits, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, baked with leaven, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. And so the instruction is to present these two loaves with leaven, whereas 50 days earlier the instruction was to only consume unleavened bread and present unleavened offerings to God. And so something has clearly changed in between the Feast of First Fruits and this uh, Feast of Shavuot. And possibly, well, I would, I would argue that it is um, the spilling of the unblemished Lamb of God and that it's through his blood that these leavened offerings that I believe would symbolize imperfect Jews and imperfect Gentiles can now be made acceptable to the Lord through the blood of the Lamb. That once the instruction was unleavened and now leavened offerings are acceptable at this time. And so I would say that this is the case because it is only after this event that both Jews and Gentiles start to realize that their blood, their ethnicity, their, their culture no longer qualifies or disqualifies them. That it's not about their blood, that it's about the blood of Jesus himself. And it's through our faith in him that we are saved rather than uh, whether we are Jewish or Gentile. And so this instruction in Leviticus 23, I believe, was God hinting at a coming time where he would make us acceptable to him as imperfect, as leavened beings. Um, now we are unblemished and unleavened because of Jesus and our faith in him. And so something you may have noticed in that uh, Leviticus 23 passage is that this offering was to be a, a, a first fruits to the Lord. And so this is a, a different harvest to the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, the Feast of First Fruits was about barley. This is about wheat. And so the instruction is to bring your first fruits to the Lord once again. Uh, we know that during the Feast of First Fruits, Jesus was raised on that day. And so he is um, the first fruits of the resurrection, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but during this feast, uh, the Feast of Wheat, I believe it symbolizes the first fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters that are loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And something that we have to keep in mind is that the first fruits is just an initial offering of the much more that is to come, that it's just a small portion of the greater harvest. And so if the people in Acts were the first fruits of the work of the Holy Spirit, then we are part of that greater harvest that has come and I believe is still to come. Because Jesus often used uh, agricultural terms to speak about the harvest. Uh, telling his disciples, he said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so we are required to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send more workers, to send us. 
And so he has, right back at, uh, at the beginning of our message, where we looked at the ascension of Jesus, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And so we are living in the age of the harvest, and we have been commissioned, we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I believe that we are born for such a time as this. And this is something that we've spoken about over the few months, that just like Esther, who was born for that particular time, God could have decided that we were born 100 years ago or 100 years from now, but in his wisdom, he decided that right now was the perfect time for each of us in this room to be alive and that he has a specific plan and purpose for us. And something that I find really interesting um, is that even after this incredible event, it took a long time before those that were saved began to, to go out. Um, most of us will be familiar with the story of, is it Cornelius, who also received the Holy Spirit? That was 10 years after um, what took place in Acts 2. And so we see that um, the church in Jerusalem very quickly became comfortable and settled with what they had received. And so God used Roman persecution to spread them out, to spread the gospel even further and quicker than it did during a time of peace. And so I have a sense that based on the similarities um, of Revelation 12, uh, which is something that Eric spoke of last week, and the events that are taking place in Israel right now, um, the, if you read Revelation 12, the first half of the chapter is basically giving an overview of um, from Adam and Eve uh, up until now where uh, the woman will give birth to a child and that the dragon, Satan, will try to consume, um, but he will be victorious. And then the second half looks very similar to what's happening right now. It talks about that the woman will be saved by the wings of eagles um, and that, that, that the, uh, the dragon will try to drown the woman um, in a flood. And it, I, I think it's, again, take this, take this lightly, but the Alaska flood was the name of what took place um, on October 7th. Um, but the earth will open up and it will consume the water and it seems that at this point the earth has been more supportive of Israel uh, than they have in times past and it almost seems like what the enemy is trying to do is failing. But the warning is that, um, where am I? The warning is that he will become enraged and so he will wage war against the rest of the offspring, against those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And so that's us, that's you, me, that's the church. And so what, 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 if this is true, then what's taking place at the moment will fail, that the enemy will not be successful in what he's trying to do, and he will become enraged and he will turn on the church. And so I sense that we are coming into a time of persecution that we haven't experienced uh, here in the West. Um, but this is something that we're told to expect, um, that Jesus spoke of it, Peter and Paul speak of it throughout uh, their letters to the churches, that we should expect persecution and that we should actually rejoice when such things happen, that we would be considered worthy uh, to suffer for the name of Christ. Um, and what I find interesting is that it's in the nations that are more persecuted, that have less religious freedoms, ones like China, Iran, Afghanistan, that the church is actually growing quicker. And so it must be frustrating for Satan because the very thing that's supposed to um, 
destroy his enemy, persecution, actually brings forth greater fruit um, and greater harvest. And so I think one of the ways he gets around that is he makes the Western church apathetic, that we become just kind of settled and content like the church in Jerusalem was. And I think God will use persecution in order to cast us out and to spread this gospel message. And that could be something that scares people, but actually it's not. It's an exciting thing. It's something that should um, fill us with hope because whether we live or whether we die, it really doesn't matter. We know where we're going. And so, uh, Father, I just pray over each person in this room. Lord, I don't know. You'll let your word be true and anything I've said just fall to the wayside if it's, if it's nonsense, God. But Lord, I pray that you would prepare each person. We believe that you have called us for such a time as this, that we have been born intentionally in this time, in this day, in this age for a reason, God. And so even in the word that was shared this morning, that you would prepare us, that you would give us the armor, that you would give us the tools that are specific to us and what you've called us to, Lord, um, and that we would be ready, whatever may come, whether it's persecution, whether it's something else, Lord. And I just pray against apathy, Lord, that seems so prevalent in the church, that you would wake us up, that you would stir us, Lord, that you would place a fire in us, um, that we would have a, a, a godly boldness and, and courage, but also full of your love, Lord, to go forth, to uh, make disciples, to, to share your good news, Lord, that we would be salt and light as you've instructed us to be in every area, God. Would you wake up the church, Lord, and we just pray for the harvest, God, that you would use us, that we um, have been called, we've been empowered, and so you would use us, Lord, send us into uh, the fields, Father, to, to bring in the harvest, not for our glory, but for your glory, Lord Jesus. We just thank you that you are so um, present in these things that we are learning. And I pray that, yeah, it wouldn't just be head knowledge, that we truly would fall more in love with you, Jesus, as we see you represented in these feasts. Um, and that we would be conformed more into your image, God. And anything that is just something I'm bringing, God, that, yeah, it would fall by the wayside and that it would just be your words, Holy Spirit, that you would be teaching us. And so I just commit each person to you this morning, God. I thank you. I ask that you would bless them, Lord God. Um, I pray over the rest of today as they go forth that you would just re-energize them, Lord. Fill them with hope. Fill them with um, your truth. Fill them with your peace as they go forth into the week ahead. And yeah, I just pray for uh, situations and encounters and, and, and opportunities to rise, to have conversations with people they work with or people that they bump into, God that it would come forth so naturally. Evangelism can be such a scary term. Um, and so I just pray that it would happen in such a, a natural way, God, that it would happen even without us realizing that we are evangelizing. But you would also give us a boldness to ask questions, to challenge people on, on what they think and what they believe, um, and that it would bring forth fruit for your glory, Lord God. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Well, stick around. We've got uh, savouries and tea and coffee. My apologies for going over a bit, but hope you've had a wonderful day and continue to enjoy this beautiful weather, whatever your plans may be. Cool. Bless you guys.